And welcome to the Range Project Podcast. This is Chris McGrory, and I'm currently a senior on the baseball team at Harvard studying psychology and economics. And in these conversations, I'm trying to learn from those around me and better understand what my amazing guests do and how they do it. So that means getting the tips, tricks, and routines that they use, plus the mental frameworks they have so you and I can apply them in our own lives. Now, today we have Molly Levins. And let me tell you, Molly did Harvard right. After an injury her first year of college ended her downhill skiing career, she was able to dedicate even more time and energy into a major she designed called Food in the Environment. She took classes across about like 20 different disciplines, traveled the world for research from Indonesia and Japan to Central and South America, all on Harvard's dime, and lived in both the housing system and non-traditional co-op during her four years. And now she is traveling the country as she works remotely as a data consultant to help large food companies work towards sustainable supply chains. Now, fair warning, this one is a deep dive on all things food, farming, the environment, and sustainability. And I learned a ton. Molly's obvious passion plus deep understanding of these topics made this conversation as informative as it was a pleasure. We talk about how she thinks about diet, and spoiler, she does not call herself vegan or vegetarian. The barriers to fighting climate change with food. And we begin with a proper yet accessible lesson in agriculture. And we really dig into regenerative agriculture. So for context, let me explain. Regenerative agriculture is a type of farming that at its core emphasizes soil health. And on top of that, helps communities thrive by managing how the land gets used, by not letting land go barren, minimizing the breaking up of soil from tilling, and planting diverse crops without harmful fertilizers. Carbon, which we know contributes to global warming, can be captured in the ground. And this was crazy to me when I first learned about it because it can potentially help reverse climate change. And this is important because industrial agriculture, where most of our food comes from, destroys the soil, releasing carbon into the atmosphere, just like our cars. While that doesn't do it justice, and there's a lot more variables at play, I hope that'll be helpful for you before you hear more from the one and only Molly Levins. One, two, three, do it! Molly, hello. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I am so excited for this conversation. We were talking before hitting record, but you're one of the first guests to be really kind of like a 
domain expert in what you study. And I think I will learn a lot from this conversation. Hopefully all the the millions and millions of listeners out there will as well. So that's all to say. I am I'm very excited to talk about food, environment, life. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be called an expert. <laughs> like a recent a recent college grad, but all of a sudden an expert in the field. It happened so quickly. When you spend 4 years of college in one domain, you kind of you kind of get that. And first off, Thank you to Caroline Noble, episode number five for the introduction. She said, okay, I just met Molly. You need to talk with her. So, Well, thank you. Yeah. And I mean, we could take this conversation in a million different directions, but, and we'll definitely bounce around, but I'd love to first hear how, and correct me if I'm wrong, a science and journalism class with Michael Pollan helped propel you down the world of regenerative agriculture. Seems like crazy, please. Yeah, so Michael Pollan, earlier in college, I did not actually agree with a lot of his views on the food system. I thought that they were very romanticized. He had studied um, he had studied literature and nature, so he came in from more humanities perspective. And earlier- Yeah, can you give a little bit of background on high level what his stance is? Yeah, so he um, he's most famous for The Omnivore's Dilemma. He's written a whole plethora of, of books about food, um, but more generally, his themes follow the relationship between humans and nature. So his first book was about, um, it was landscape-focused and about architecture. And more recently, he's um, very well known, especially amongst college students, for his work on psychedelics, um, How to Change Your Mind. And so his view on the relationship between humans and food was people need to be cooking more. People need to be more connected to the land. We need to move away from the industrialized system was his core argument. And I came into college actually believing that kind of more with that mindset, because that is the framework that my mom had raised me with. And I will probably, my mom will come up much more in this conversation. And and then I started taking some courses at Harvard, where my first professor is one of them. He is a consultant for Monsanto and has very big ag. You know, yes, there are problems, but let's fix the problems within big ag rather than disregard that entire system. Or a um, a plant biologist who helps with the development of um, of GMO crops. And so there was there was just a certain framework, but we were so malleable as a college freshman that I learned something new and was like, oh my goodness, I was so, how was I so foolish to think everything I thought before, completely switching my, my worldview of agricultural systems to those of the, the three professors at Harvard that study those systems. There are not very many of them, and so they have a lot of power over the one student moving through saying, I want to dedicate my life to this intersection of food and the environment. Um, anyhow, so coming senior year, then taking the course with Michael Pollan made me really appreciate, oh, wow, there is this other perspective that just is not... Um, is not represented within the Harvard sphere, but if you take a creative writing course in the English department, then you can be exposed to a different perspective. That is pretty funny. And that resonates with me, just like how you learn one thing and you're like, 
I'm a changed person and that happens every semester. So that's, I think what college is for, but I guess to go back, maybe we should define our terms and maybe you can help me define the terms, the differences between regenerative ag versus non-GMO versus organic versus industrial ag. These are buzzwords that promoters and marketers use for their food, but what does it actually mean? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> you have so much to say on this. The So regenerative ag, I think there are two different def- definitions. The first is far more holistic, and it says, let's use food and agriculture as a way to improve the natural landscape and empower communities and improve health. So it's just a really optimistic view on the potential of food and agriculture. Another definition of it or understanding of regenerative agriculture is a way to capture atmospheric carbon into agricultural soils. So that one is a lot, there's a lot of interest in that second definition from bankers who want to trade carbon credits, from Shell Oil who wants to buy carbon credits to um, offset their own emissions. And so there's, yeah, there's those two different, and I think there's tensions within the community on trying to figure out where where regenerative agriculture should go. There's, um, if you just focus on just the carbon, it loses some of the essence of what the regenerative agriculture movement more generally is trying to do. Because if you just focus on carbon, then you're looking at, an, at a complex agricultural system through just one metric through just one mechanism. And so you could theoretically increase carbon, but maybe you don't have good labor practices for the farmers. Maybe you're not growing the world's most nutritious food. Um, And so regenerative systems, the way that I'm optimistic about them, the way I know that Caroline Noble is, you know, is saying, okay, let's readdress the entire way that food is produced. So that's regenerative agriculture. And there's a lot of, there's there's no explicit definition for it. So GMOs, genetically modified organisms, are within the United States have predominantly been implemented in the past as a way to then apply large amounts of herbicide. So you can plant a field of crops with a a genetically modified corn corn or soybean uh, seed, and then it will grow, and then you can dump a ton of glyphosate, which is a herbicide most infamously produced by Monsanto, and everything else will die except for that crop because that crop has been modified to not um, be affected by glyphosate. And that's important because of the health implications for it, right? Like, yeah, there's there's. I think divided scientific literature on the human health implications of that crop down the line, certainly for those who are applying the crop, if they don't take the proper measurements, then um, precautions, and there are very significant health implications. And then there's arguments for how quickly, I've heard arguments on both sides of the aisle for how quickly that chemical degrades, both within the natural ecosystem, as well as for humans. So if you ask Robert Paulberg, he's a professor at the Kennedy School and one of my professors in college, and he he would say, well, glyphosate is actually the best herbicide we have because it degrades really quickly. Um, so, you know, 
saying, well, of all the, of all the bad things in the world, we have to pick one because we have to grow a lot of food. We have to control for weeds of all of our options. Let's, let's use glyphosate. And so that's, that's GMOs. And the, the pushback against GMOs comes from a lot of different angles. One of the ones that strikes the most resonance with me is the is the corporate power. If you then own the DNA structure um, and you have copyright over the DNA structure of, of seeds that are going into the ground, there are then a lot of tensions between farmers and these large organizations. Um, and I think that there's been some sketchy, um, some sketchy law work done, you know, of suing farmers who misuse the seeds. And um, yeah, so there's, there's tension in there and having such powerful corporations owning quote unquote American agriculture. Um, and then also those influences once they go abroad and those power dynamics are of course, even more dramatic when you go abroad because you have a large American corporation and maybe some smallholder farmer, cotton farmers, for example, in India, and those power dynamics are really large on who's selling the seed, who's buying it. Um, and so there's that big problem. There's concern about the ecosystem how it disrupts the ecosystem if you're introducing crops that are not, quote, natural, if they have DNA that comes from multiple different sources. I am less concerned about that just because we've been um, hybridizing crops for such a long time. But I'm glad you brought that up because what you're talking about and you made the, the distinction right from the get is that these are genetically modified not a result of just the natural, I guess we've been, we've been manipulating nature forever trying to get like a seedless grape or like whatever. That is not what you're talking about. Yes. But what's interesting is a lot of hybrids are still made in the lab. So what GMO means is that you're taking DNA from a different species or a, thank you or a fully different, you can be taking a gene from a jellyfish that exhibits some random characteristic that that jellyfish exhibits, and you can be putting that in potato, right? And so that's what is different, but we could be taking most hybridized plants, or not with most, many hybridized plants are produced in a lab. They'll be taking some aspect of one corn that they like and another aspect of another corn and they're making this really precise hybrid. So the the use of a scientific laboratory is what scares a lot of people, but that's not necessarily what's new. It's that jump between species that under no circumstances could ever happen in nature. Gotcha. So, okay, getting away from nature. And I think that is important because a lot of people will throw out the term like, oh, GMO this, GMO that, but they're not as precise in their definition. So, so thank you. And okay. I think a reason why I don't have like a perfect understanding of the differences between these practices is because there's no like certified regenerative, like I can't go into whole foods. Oh, there is. I'm okay, so and then can you? <laughs> okay, then can you help me understand certified regenerative, and then maybe contrast that with organic, because that is for a lot of people, and in my own mind, like 
the gold standard of my mom's shopping cart (laughs) over my life. So can you help me understand the difference? Yes. Oh, I wrote, I wrote a whole thing about this in Michael Pollan's class. And so you're asking the right questions um, because it is confusing for consumers. And it, the challenge is how to introduce this new idea of regenerative agriculture without confusing consumers. Cause there already are so many labels out there and consumers and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this again later in the conversation of what people should be eating, what people shouldn't be eating. And there's so many conflicting narratives on that, that, um, it can leave, lead a lot of people to just become stagnated and say, ah, nothing, nothing's good. It's all bad, whatever. I'm just going to not think about it at all. Um, so the organic movement, when it started in the 60s and 70s, was primarily based in soil. So these were farmers that were interested in rebuilding soil health and were excited about the social justice aspects of farming. They exhibited many of the characteristics of the current regenerative agriculture movement. Over time, the certification was then incorporated by the USDA. And it now, as it currently stands, it has criteria that do not allow for a specific set of, quote, unnatural chemicals. You're still able to use some chemicals that are naturally occurring or can be naturally derived, but you're not allowed to use various forms of synthetic fertilizer, you can't use glyphosate. Um, And so it's more of a, the organic certification is a stamp of what is not used in the production of the product rather than a stamp for what is used. And so the, the veil of organic, the misunderstanding of organic agriculture is that most organic foods are still produced on industrialized farms. These are still very large farms that use big, huge tractors and are owned by very large corporations and are still shipped all around the world. So it's not these mom and pop farmers that people often romanticize when they hear the word organic, but those foods were produced without the use of modern agrochemical inputs. Um, So that is the organic certification as it stands. The So there's a regenerative organic certification that um, was just launched, it was 2019 or 20, Um, so it's pretty recent, and it was the the three premier organizations that launched it were Dr. Bronner Soap, which most um, outdoor enthusiasts slash hippies slash whole foods goers um, have at some point used Dr. Bronner Soap. And uh, during Michael Pollan's class, I actually got to interview um, Dr. Bronner, the current CEO or the cosmic engagement officer, as he calls himself, um, over Zoom. And just a really fascinating guy who's done a lot of work on drug advocacy, trying to decriminalize marijuana and, um, yeah, is a fun, lives in California and does a lot of surfing. And anyhow, so Dr. Bronner Soap, Patagonia Provisions, so that's the food arm of the Patagonia clothing company that many people, most especially college students are very familiar with. And the Rodale Institute, which is one of the leading research institutes and in, in farms. It's a, it's a farm based in Pennsylvania um, that does a lot of research on organics. And so they launched this regenerative organic certification. And what's interesting is it requires organic as the baseline for regenerative. So it says, unless you are totally 100% organic, you cannot even begin to consider yourself regenerative. 
which there are other people in the movement that would say that regenerative does not have to be tied with organic. For example, there is one of the uh, practices that's used in regenerative farming or encouraged is called no-till, where you do not till and disrupt the soil. There's, I could talk for a very long time about the soil chemistry and why that's disruptive, but it releases carbon and it's not good for the soil, it's not good for the plants. And so it's, it's easier to practice no-till agriculture often when you're using agrochemicals. So if you can use an herbicide to manage the weeds, then you don't have to till to manage those weeds. And then you also don't have to have a farm intern out there manually weeding all day every day, which would raise the cost of the crop. And so there are ways to do it, of course, that are organic and are regenerative, but whether or not you need to be fully 100% organic before you even consider moving on to this higher level, the gold standard, which is interesting because you had said the gold standard in reference to organic, the regenerative organic, they see that as the gold standard because it not only incorporates organic, but also elements of fair trade. So you have, you know, co-op there, they want co-ops and they want it to be farmer driven and they want social justice and animal welfare. So they see regenerative organic certification as the, the pinnacle that says you don't need any other certification. You need nothing else. You don't need the non-GMO. You don't need any of that. If there's a stamp on the food that says this, we've got you covered. Well, thank you. And (laughs) I think it would be helpful. I probably should have brought this up earlier as to maybe help me and the listeners understand like, why should people care about this? at all and maybe in doing so contrast regenerative ag and versus industrial ag and what those farming practices look like you can dig into the soil because that is probably the the cornerstone of why regenerative ag is so important so yes please take me to school yeah so So I said this before about the power of regenerative, why regenerative agriculture is exciting for me is it's bringing optimism to this space. So we humans eat three times a day. So we're engaging with food three times a day. And so people should care because the food that we eat fuels our own bodies. It can bring us tremendous joy, right? Every time you eat something delicious, right? You say, oh, this is so fun. I spend at least an hour every day, right? Oh, I say at least an hour, at least multiple hours of every day, like thinking about what I'm going to eat. Right? Same here. Eating it, thinking about how good it was I just ate. So if you're going to, humans have to eat, we might as well make it delicious and a fun experience. Um, So that's one reason humans should care. It's just that everyone has to eat. And then agriculture as an industry is one of the world's largest emitters of greenhouse gases. It is the largest use of land. It is the largest user of fresh water. So our three kind of main environmental resources, agriculture is so prominent within those. So if we want to address global sustainability, whether that's biodiversity or climate change or freshwater access, you need to address the way in which we're producing food. And let's just underscore that, that it's not the factories with the dirty smokestack that you see that is the largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions that is easier to see 
And so I don't know if everybody, myself included, before learning about this and just diving into this whole world was like, ag, that's 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 who's moving the needle on climate change. Like that's yeah. the problem. I mean, it's so transportation, and you should fact check myself on this, but transportation is a lot as an industry, it just depends on where you draw the, the lines between industry, is the largest emitter. Um, which makes sense, and energy generation. Um, but as a segment, but agriculture, so the biggest, one of the biggest environmental implications of agriculture is land use change. So if you have a vast swath of the Amazon, right, we, the picture we always think of is in Brazil, there's been a lot of deforestation in that area. And so when you cut down those trees, and then you grow a bunch of soybeans on that soil, that change from a forest to agricultural land releases carbon for pretty much at every step. You're removing the trees, so you're removing a carbon sink. Through the removal of trees, you're disrupting the soil. And then, yes, most often that soy is being fed to a cattle, fed to cattle, fed to a cow, um, which is releasing methane as I digest that. And then that um, has to be shipped off to somewhere else. And so just every step along the way, you are producing carbon, releasing greenhouse gases. Right. And so methane also an even bigger contributor, like per particle, I guess, to greenhouse gas emissions. And then you mentioned a carbon sink, if you just want to define that yeah, methane is is so fascinating. I've had a whole conversation recently with a couple of friends about this. Is it so it degrades um, into carbon dioxide? So methane is far more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide initially, meaning that for every ray of UV that it gets from the sun, it is far more likely to capture that in its earth in the Earth's atmosphere but it then degrades into carbon dioxide. So the power of methane as a greenhouse gas depends on your time scale that you are projecting forward. So if you're interested in addressing climate change in the next 20 years, methane is, we gotta focus on methane, right? Because that's, but then if you're interested in climate change on a 300 year scale, methane is not as relevant because it just degrades into carbon dioxide. I'd never thought about that. Yeah. So it's interesting. And it's another, so the reason I, I called a friend and I was like, I just had this epiphany because that's why you see these crazy different stats for if Burger King is releasing a stat versus PETA, one will say methane is 100 times more potent than, than carbon dioxide. And, and the other one will say, you know, we shouldn't really be worried about methane. And so it's, you can play with the statistics based on the modeling based on the years that you are modeling for greenhouse gases. So that's methane. And then carbon sink is, I'm trying to think of a, a pity definition, but a mechanism to remove carbon from the atmosphere. Right. So Perfect. forests, um, agricultural soils, there's weathering of rocks removes atmosphere. That's the natural. And that's why deforestation and land use change is such a big issue. Sorry to derail your your thought, but yeah. I'll let you keep going. Oh no, that's correctly. That's exactly it. Is so when you yeah when you cut down a forest, you're you're punching it on both ends. You're removing the sink, and you now are 
disrupting that soil. So you're releasing that and you're now putting a very energy intensive and carbon intensive activity onto that land. So you're just, it's like punch after punch after punch. Right. So now we understand ag is an issue and then where does regenerative ag, and then I guess it's worth pointing out, like this is the way of industrial ag. And so how does regenerative ag take a different approach? And that depends. I've said before, on several occasions in this conversation, how there are different opinions and different um, subgroups within regenerative agriculture. And I, my personal opinion is we need them all. So we need no-till agriculture in the Midwest for corn and soybean farmers. So these are farmers that are selling on the commodity market. Most of their corn is probably going to go to beef cattle that end up at McDonald's, right? And so many environmentalists would say, oh, you know, whatever they're doing is totally wrong in a very all or nothing sense. But for me, it's like, how can we invite as many people into the conversation as possible? You want to avoid greenwashing. So you have to be skeptical when McDonald's is saying, we want to save the world through regenerative agriculture. You're like, okay, okay, you know, let's invite you into the conversation. We should be skeptical, but instead of immediately discrediting all their programs and everything that they're doing, just because they, you know, might be doing it in a different way. And so... Yeah, I think the implementation of regenerative agriculture, it's impossible to say what that looks like because it needs to be done in a specific way for each country, each region, each crop. So what what regenerative agriculture looks like for a sorghum farmer in Ethiopia is going to look different from a coffee farmer in Colombia is going to look different from a guava farmer in Hawaii, right? And so there's versus a rancher in Montana in each one of those different agricultural systems, there's opportunities to to use the cultivation of that crop or that animal, which another thing that we'll talk about is the use of animals. But there are ways in which that they can use the cultivation of the land to improve the landscape, empower the community, make delicious, healthy food. But that's the way in which it's done is going to look different according to the time and the place. And the foundation the, found, the commonality between all of those is that there will be an emphasis on soil health. There'll be an emphasis on soil health and equitable supply chains for all the people involved. I would say those are two of the main pillars, but beyond that, there's just so much diversity, which is what we need, right? We need to not say, oh, everyone just needs nitrogen. And you're like, well, actually it's more complicated than that. And let's maybe circle it back to like the the consumer why why they should care i would imagine like the end product what the the apple you get from the store is going to be different coming from a regenerative agriculture farm versus an industrial farm am i wrong you're correct but it will be for it could be due to a whole variety of differences so the regenerative farm could be a small mom and pop farm in rural Vermont where they could be using really unique heirloom apples that don't have as long of a shelf life. So they can sell it at their farmer's market, but it would not be able to survive a shipment across the U.S. and sit on a Safeway 
our Walmart shelf for three weeks before it's purchased. So really the difference might have nothing to do with the way in which it's produced. It could just be the variety. So there's heirloom varieties, the way in which I like that you brought up apples because it's such, there's such a fascinating history of apples within the United States and how we've come to ride the red delicious. Why do we have red delicious everywhere despite the fact that it's not delicious, right? <laughs> this right. question that that um, you dwell on when you're sitting in the dining hall and you're like, why are all these apples in the dining hall? Disgusting. Anyhow, so the it could be due to the crop variety um, and the freshness. There is... I will, I will say, honestly, at this point, there's a divided science on how soil health leads to health of a crop that a person consumes. There is a hypothesis within the regenerative agriculture community that having um, a more robust micro, so soil is in and of itself a microorganism. There's a, a macroorganism filled with millions of microorganisms and there, there's critters and there, there's worms and there are fungi and there's bacteria and all these different things. And so having more diversity that we can't even see within the soil, there will be a higher concentration of um, micronutrients of zinc and boron and iron that the, that the plant can then take up and bring into the food that humans eat. So there's a hypothesis there that I am excited about. The last I heard, the research had not supported that, but that does not mean that there is not something there, but we just, as far as I'm aware in the currently published literature, we have not been able to prove that relationship yet. So what I'm hearing is as the research stands now, where there is super solid research is the potential for regenerative agriculture to potentially reduce or reverse climate change. That was like the big, the big lever it's pulling on. Oh, I mean that, so there's, there's different there's different research fields based on the goal that you're trying to get out of regenerative agriculture. The one that's the strongest is that regenerative agriculture can empower communities and it can empower rural communities because we can make more localized food systems. So a farming community in Iowa that used to maybe be this hustling and bustling city in the fifties that now there's, everyone has, scattered off to the cities and has left this town with not much to do, building a localized food system there can regenerate that local community. What the, the socioeconomic research that we've seen on that is, is really helpful. The, if your goal is to make more nutritious food, I have seen academic literature on both sides of the aisle saying that regenerative farming can make more nutritious food, but maybe that 1% increase in zinc is really just not what we should be worried about. But bringing more fruits and vegetables and bringing the different types of food, that has huge leverage on nutrition. If, you're, if what you're trying to address is carbon, oof, that is complicated. There's so much literature on both sides of the aisle because that's what people that's where the big bucks are right that's where the investors are sitting this is when big ag gets interested because industrial agriculture is saying oh yeah we can capture carbon yeah you'll pay us 50 dollars per acre right per year for us to capture carbon we can totally do that 
I had so never thought of that. And so that's a critique Robert Paulberg in his, I had mentioned him earlier. He's one of one of he was one of my professors at, at Harvard, and he he is not an advocate for regenerative agriculture because he thinks it is pretty sketchy that Shell and Monsanto and and the Republican Party and Shell Oil are all like, wow, we love regenerative agriculture. And it's like, eh, right, maybe, maybe there's something like uh, right. something kind right. of sketchy there. And so what we do know is that there is a lot of there's a lot of carbon stored in agricultural soils. We know that. We know that there are practices such as tilling that release a lot of that carbon and nitrogen. We know that. We know that there are practices that can increase the carbon in the soil. We know that. What we don't know is how much carbon we can capture, how long it will stay there, if the, how much we capture can offset the amount of carbon that we use just to run an agricultural system. There's kind of unknowns once you want to move those first three principles, once you start trying to sell carbon credits and you start to, yeah, that's when things get unknown. Gotcha. No, th thank you for that perspective because maybe I had a very Pollyanna view of regenerative agriculture as I'm starting to learn this over the past, whatever, handful of months like I'm very new to this. So th that is good to hear like, okay, maybe let's, let's question it. But you mentioned there is a huge opportunity for like improving the, like the social benefits of this practice. And so I guess my question would be, can regenerative agriculture or these farming practices feed the ever-growing population of the world is this scalable and is it realistic oh i'll just say one thing before i answer that question on um you yeah we want to be really excited about regenerative agriculture and we want to promote it while also being skeptical of it it's, it's with everything where you say this is awesome let's study this more let's try to bring this mainstream while still questioning it is it a tough balance to strike um, but the, is it scalable is a question that gets asked so much. You're asking the right question. I think in many ways, yes. For example, Argentina is one of the leaders in no-till farming, and they have transitioned most of their crops to no-till systems. But they're still big ag. They are still um, using a lot of agrochemical inputs. So you can take that as a win or you can take that as an L or you can say, okay, we're moving in that direction. In terms of will small mom and pop farms be able to feed the world? No. But do they have a role within the food system? Yes. Do they have an opportunity to supply fruits and vegetables to their local community? Yes. Will we likely still need larger scale agriculture to grow staple crops like rice and wheat and and corn and soybeans yes and so that's why i think we need to invest in both systems we need not one nor the other but a healthy balance of the two this is really really good for me to hear because there is one gung-ho side that 
make these convincing arguments like this is the future this is what is going to change the world and you're coming at it from more of a pragmatic perspective without losing your optimism for how we can improve so i just want to maybe put a cap on that and say like this is this is good for me to hear and we've kind of danced around the topic of food and food choices more at the consumer level i guess my perspective is three times a day like you mentioned we're we're making a choice that can help or hurt the planet and that is with our food choices i guess what do your food choices look like i guess first maybe why should people care about expanding on my definition why should people care about the food they eat and kind of the breakdown of their plate and then maybe as an aspirational i'd imagine you're very conscious about what you put on your plate maybe you could describe what your own diet looks like yeah um Wow, where do I begin? There's a lot of different questions in there. The why people should care, it's you had mentioned this, it's one of the largest, so the, the two biggest levers that that people have within their own lives to address global climate change. The first is international flights. So reducing the number of international flights you take. And the second is reducing your red meat consumption. So if you're looking to get the most bang for your buck, change one or two things in your life and and reduce your carbon footprint, those are two great places to start. Having said that, there are so many ways in which you can reduce your footprint that if you say, actually, my um, boyfriend lives in London and I'm going to go visit him three times a year because that's something that's super important for me, as long as you're intentional about it and you say, okay, I'm aware I'm taking this flight there is a global implication to this. I'm therefore going to maybe reduce my resource use in other ways. I am, there's this um, taking ownership and just being aware of when you are using resources and when you're not, just that awareness I think can go a long way. Um, I will also say the word carbon footprint was developed by the fossil fuel industry as a way to transition guilt away from them and towards the consumer. And so they've been like, we just, we just make the products y'all use them. Y'all figure this out because we just, we just make, we just make what the consumer demands. If you want to reduce global, global climate change, then, you know, you should really change the way you're living your life. Um, So that's a, that's a perspective to always have. And that's been helpful for me in a, in addressing climate guilt and climate anxiety is to um, be more forgiving to myself that I'm far from perfect and that I do take international flights and I, there's everything I eat is not perfect. And so I, I certainly don't eat 100% organic because I often chop on a budget and sometimes the organic stuff is more expensive, but there's a, an awareness and an intentionality. The, um, a little bit of background kind of on my own diet, I became vegetarian when I was eight as people ask, you know, when did you start caring about food and the environment? And I said, uh, forever ago, a really long time ago. Um, and at that point it was a love of animals and I was also very stubborn. I still am. And so when I said, I'm, I'm a coming vegetarian, 
my parents just laughed because <laughs> I was like, I don't agree with modern agriculture. And they were like, okay, that's, that's nice. Um, and then as soon as they had any doubt, then I felt that I really had to do it. And I started eating fish, eating seafood, non-predatory seafood. So I still at as much as possible, I almost never eat tuna or any large um, swordfish or any. Yeah. Can you define that as somebody who is also close to a pescatarian, I guess, diet myself? What does, what should I be on the lookout for? Yeah. So, um, uh, shellfish, most shellfish are filter feeders, so they can actually clean water. So Patagonia provisions, they have a line of mussels and they, um, and so the, growing mussels within a waterway can actually improve and clean that waterway, right? Hence regenerative. Mussels are not a resource intensive way to produce protein. Um, so mussels, oysters, clams, great. There are ways that we, we need to be intentional about our production of them so that we don't run out. We maintain healthy populations, but sardines, mackerel, these very non-glorified fish that I find delicious. I love myself some small little fish. And um, and, then, and then you have mid-sized fish. So you have you know, salmon is a great example of a mid-sized fish that eats, you know, small bugs. It depends if it's farmed. It's mostly just eating like corn and chicken leftovers. <laughs> um, and, and then you have predatory fish that eat other medium-sized fish, so tuna being the best example. So as you move up the food chain, you have two concerns, like three concerns. The populations get smaller and smaller. So there are thousands of sardines for every 100 salmon for every one tuna. The second concern, so it's hard to maintain those populations. They have a longer lifespan. The second concern is mercury. So there's a process called biological magnification and mercury concentrations increase as you move up the food chain. And the, I guess, yeah, those are the two there's higher numbers and oh, it just takes more resources. So to produce one thing of tuna, it had to eat so many salmon and so many mussels. And so it just is a less, um, if I choose a fish, if I'm going to buy a canned fish, then I'll always go with the sardines. And that, that is a very easy trade-off for me. The, so I, then throughout college, um, there were spurts of veganism. And then interestingly, I had a, I got a fellowship um, for after graduation to be in Argentina for a year working on cattle ranches. Um, so went to Argentina and my very first meal there, I was working at a ranch and they had a big barbecue and there was meat. Um, and I said, okay. And I ate the meat and I had a, what was so funny was I went from that to, went from vegetarian to for my two weeks at that farm, um, only eating meat. <laughs> that was the only thing that was served. I had a lot of stomach pain that my body then, <laughs> then readjusted to. Um, I had to come home because of COVID, but I've now maintained, I no longer use the term vegetarian, but I do not purchase meat. So I, um, I only purchase vegan products but I am okay eating just about anything. And so that puts me in a position where I eat primarily 
leftovers. I will eat any food that is going to get thrown out. <laughs> um, recently, there was a giant box of bruised apples sitting outside the grocery store, and I took them home and made fermented cider. Uh, so I juiced them all <laughs> and fermented it into fermented cider. So I will, um, yeah, it allows me to be flexible. It allows me to travel and to try foods of the world. But when I'm in my own position to purchase food as a consumer, I go to the produce aisle and I just buy all the produce I buy. But also, pro tip for anybody who's looking to, to start cooking their own food for nutritious and cheap and sustainable are root vegetables. Oh, they will, so sweet potatoes and carrots and garlic and onions and radishes and beets. Um, those are just, I think, the best place to start. They're really, re they're low resources to produce. Potatoes, you can get more calories per acre than any other crop. Um, they're all, I think, very delicious, especially if you, if you produce them well, they're nutritious and, and they also are really shelf stable. Another good one is cabbage, big, big cabbage fan. It lasts for a very long time. So it's great for when I'm traveling around the U.S. and I just have a cabbage in the back or, or butternut squash or, um, yeah. So that's my, my diet. And I really, I think I'm proud of my diet because I don't instill any singular way. Sometimes when people meet me and they say, oh, you study food in the environment, they're like, I buy everything organic, only local. And they become very defensive. I'm like, eat what makes you happy, right? I'm not here to, to coach you to not to coach you, to police you into what to eat or what not to eat. I can encourage you to move away from red meat. I can encourage you to, you know, cook a beet burger instead of a burger burger. But also if once a week you want to have a burger because that's something that brings you tremendous joy, then at least engage with it in an intentional way and make sure that that beef you are eating has been produced in a sustainable way. Well, thank you for that overview. That's yeah. really helpful for me to hear. And I like how it sounds like you're very intentional in not siloing yourself into one definition of a diet. So does that mean that if you're in a social situation outside of your time in Argentina, and I found myself at a cookout, the only thing is a burger, you would eat a burger or what whatever is offered yes is that kind yeah. of how you're thinking about it okay that's yeah. which which i think is there's a there's a tension there i so for example i went to um i was in a environmental conference in china several years ago and at that point was very very vegetarian of like i will never eat meat and there was other people on the trip that said um we've flown all the way here that was such a big carbon output for us to fly all the way here i'm going to enjoy the culture of this the food of this culture and not worry about meat and i said well every person every other student at this conference is looking to us as harvard students we have a lot of power here you know me saying no i would not like that pork dumpling is a political statement and so there's a balance there sometimes in inviting your dietary choices are an invitation to open up a conversation. Whereas if you're at the cookout and you say, oh yeah, I'll have a burger and you don't, there's a point there in which you could introduce a conversation. Um, but there's also points in which having that conversation is not going to be constructive. It might just be alienating. So 
yes, in my own life, I look for opportunities to have those conversations, but also don't want to not get an invitation to the next cookout because I, you know, just spent the whole time there lecturing people about why sausage was the the death of them. Right. Nobody wants that. So I guess we've been talking a lot about you and I, what should maybe somebody who wants to address their diet might be open to making easy changes or big changes what do you think that the average consumer should be on the lookout for if they want to be mindful of their own diet and its environmental impact? I'd say before you answer, not to mention just the health benefits of how it makes my body feel eating more plant-based products than animal-based products. I think that might be a different but parallel conversation, but circling it back to to the question, what should somebody be on the lookout for? I think the most powerful thing they can do is start by just cooking more. So exploring new recipes, right? Because yeah, if they're like, well, I've never, you know, uh, I've never cooked with chickpeas. I have no idea what to do with chickpeas. Look up a hummus recipe, try making hummus. Maybe you don't love it, but just try it. And so becoming more familiar with your kitchen, the ingredients inside, what, how to cook. I know, for example, a lot of people cook chicken because they say it gives me, if I need protein, I can cook up chicken and there's protein immediately. I don't have, I don't have a plant-based alternative for that. And I say, well, you, you know, once a week you can meal prep a different veggie burger that you keep in your freezer and you then just microwave and you get home from work. But they're like, well, I've never cooked a veggie burger. I don't know. What, what? You know, and then they look up the veggie burger recipe and they're calling for black beans. And they're like, well, I've never cooked with black beans before. Right? And so there's just becoming more familiar with the food options that are out there and being excited and open to experimenting for me not cooking with meat. I'm like, okay, well, in the um, standard American grocery store, you maybe have right six different types of meat. Whereas I'm like, there are, you know, 20 different types of beans. You've got like lima beans and pinto and brown beans and refries. I'm like, wow, there's so many kidney beans and that's just the beans. And then you got your lentils. And so for me, I'm like, and then yeah, look at the produce aisle and go to your own farmer's market. And like, you got rutabaga, right? And it's like, there's so many options. So I think that not cooking with meat or just even, or even then, yeah, the, you can use meat, but, um, to accompany a plethora of other delicious plant based options. And I like how, how you said that the, the standard American diet is the meat is the centerpiece and then the veggies and produce are the accents. And if you flip that script, you're already making a, a big leap forward. And I'm glad you brought up the briefly, the protein piece. That is the question that folks in my own circle, D1 athletes and otherwise, they say like, well, where do you get your protein? And I say, well, <laughs> I I find it in, in plants where yeah. I'd say like, same place animals find it. I mean, like, right. where does the cow get their protein? I don't know. So I, I'd say for me, that looks like finding a tofu recipe that's actually delicious. Find, mm-hmm. if you don't like that, experiment with tempeh. Mm-hmm. I've turned a lot of friends onto folks who would never eat tofu. They're like, 
well, tempeh is tastes more like beans and it, it's more familiar. And then, I mean, I personally eat eggs. It's like great source of protein. So I'm glad you brought that up. And I just wanted to note kind of like where I would find protein. Are there any favorite recipes that you've been playing around with recently? Oh man. Um, I mean, again, my, my cooking is very sporadic because I, I, oh, my favorite thing to do, and this is what I'm very known for amongst my group of friends is I open the fridge and whatever is there trying to whip up a meal from, from that, um, which is, yeah, it makes it easier. It takes a, it takes time. I've been cooking my entire life. And so it took time to develop those skills and that awareness of how food works to be able to do that. But it's also frees me from having to plan, Oh, what am I going to have for protein on a Friday? You know, on a Monday I have to grocery shop and I have to make sure that I have my, my protein locked down for every single meal. Whereas if you know how to stock your fridge and stock your pantry with a variety of different delicious things. And then when it comes to mealtime, I don't think about protein because it, for me at this point, and I'm again, fortunate because I've been cooking plant-based for such a long time. It just happens naturally. You know, I'll make a, um, I, I love going to the Asian grocery store and I get all their crazy noodles. So I'll get like soba noodles, which are made with buckwheat and have higher levels of protein. And then I'll make a, um, like a lemon tahini sauce to, to have over that. So there's protein in the tahini, there is protein in the soba noodles. Um, so I don't have to visually see the protein. If you just stock your fridge and pantry with, and, and kale has protein. And if you make a kale salad, toss over some hemp seeds, maybe you have a bag of hemp seeds in your cupboard. And so there, yeah, that, Um, I don't plan my meals around protein, but I think if you have protein rich and nutrient rich foods, if that's what's available, that is what's going to end up on your plate. Awesome. And I think there is a natural point for us to move on to talk about meat and especially the role livestock and grazing plays into the conversation we were having earlier with regenerative agriculture. Maybe could you help me understand like the important role or unimportant role that livestock play in this regenerative agriculture, these regenerative agricultural practices? Yeah. So Plants, animals, fungi, bacteria, they all evolve together. So an ecosystem, every ecosystem on earth involves at least one of those. And I should say, I mean, there's some crazy stuff in the deep ocean that defy all odds, but every land-based ecosystem has one of each of those and, and a whole mix of them. And so there is an important role for animals in nutrient cycling that they eat the grass. So for buffalo, right, that evolved on the American West, they eat the plains, the grass in the Great Plains, and their manure is deposited into the soil, which gives nutrients to the next round of grasses. These grasses are perennial, meaning that they regrow year after year, meaning they have long roots, which means they capture more carbon. Um, And so there's a lot of great things about this system. And so if you think about a sustainable way to produce produce protein. I, throughout this episode, I've mentioned Patagonia Provisions. They have a 
buffalo jerky, where they are grazing buffalo on the Great Plains in an ecosystem that was evolved to handle, to actually thrive with the presence of buffalo. Um, so they are, the, the challenge right now is most American beef jerky. There, it was grown with corn, which is not a perennial crop. It's an annual crop. So you use all these inputs dumped on it to make it grow really fast and then shipped off to West Texas where every, I just drove through West Texas and saw oh, thousands of CAFOs, concentrated animal feed organizations. Um, you know, and then, and then all that manure is then trapped in West Texas, but you need it up in Iowa. And so then you have the manure releasing all this, all these greenhouse gases down in West Texas while you're dumping artificial fertilizer up in Iowa to grow the corn. And so there's just a disconnect in that nutrient cycle. And so regenerative agriculture is saying, let's bring those, yeah, let's bring those back together. And um, so, but the, the key here is the ratio of plants to animals. Every vegetable farm should maybe have a, a goat that goes over and munches on all the woody stems that are left over from the previous crop and, you know, will poop all around and that's great. But there's maybe one goat for every field. So when you're thinking about how much food volume is produced, you have, you know, a goat every six months versus boxes and boxes of vegetables on a weekly basis. Um, so there is a, a very important role for livestock in the way in which they can cycle nutrients and the way in which they can complement the growth of different plants. Chickens will scratch at the ground so they can actually, um, you know, pick at weeds. There's a, if you have a problem, you're like, oh, I have this weed that is growing. Maybe Goats really love to eat that weed, but a cow won't. So then you'll use a goat to graze on that. So there's just an intentionality of how animals fit within the ecosystem. Um, so I think humans should eat animal protein if they would like. If, they, if people say, I don't want to eat it for ethical reasons, great, don't. Right? You can still have that goat nibble on the remains and poop on the, on the vegetable plot without eating that goat. So you don't actually need to eat it for me. I'm saying, well, if you're producing it, you might as well cook it for me. <laughs> but that's good. Yeah. Right. If it's living a full life and has a natural yeah. death and it's, yeah. it's time and it's part of the life cycle. So I guess that is helpful in informing maybe my food choices in the future if I come across a... Uh, is there a regenerative ag certification for animal-based products? Like, could I have a regenerative ag certified bison burger? I'm not familiar with one particular one on a national scale. I, there's, I think something in like 100% certified grass fed beef. And so, um, yeah, if it's 100% grass-fed. But there is a difference between, interesting in bringing this up, there's a difference between grass-fed and regenerative. So a animal can be 100% grass-fed, but a key to regenerative is moving that animal through the landscape in a way that mimics how they would have naturally moved through that landscape without human intervention. So going back to the buffalo example, buffalo move as a pack as a tight herd because it's more um, helpful for predators. So if a 
if a wolf wants to chase down a bison, what they will do is they will seek out that one bison that's a little bit further away from the from the pack and chase that down. And that bison is weak. It's like natural. It's um, it's like capture the flag. There's more power in numbers, right? If you're trying to run and get the flag, you like run as a whole herd over to to distract everything. Um, so they would stay as a tight group. They would graze heavily on one area for a short period of time and then move to the next and not come back to that initial area for a long period of time. And so that would give that first area a long time to fully regrow. And so this um, way of grazing is called mob grazing, M-O-B, um, or rotational grazing. And so they are, whereas a lot of grass-fed operations, they leave the cows in a giant area for an extended period of time because it's more effort to move them. Okay, if they've been there for three days, move them to the next. Oh, they've been there for an hour, move them to the next. They've been there for 40. There's just a lot more moving around. Um, but if you leave it in one area for a long period of time, you don't get those same benefits because the cows can be more particular about what they eat. You don't capture as much carbon. And is that why, so maybe I think somebody saying, oh, well, I'd only eat grass-fed, grass-finished beef might, I think that is better, but maybe not as as harmless as uh, they might be thinking. Do I have that right? You Yes, you do. And there's um, Robert Paulberg, who is full of hot takes about the global food system, says that grass-fed beef is actually worse for the environment because they... so the longer a cow is alive, the more methane they are releasing. And so to finish a cow on grass will take many more months than to finish it on corn. And it takes a tremendous amount more land. And so if you're grazing them in the American Plains that is naturally grassland, great. If you're grazing it in Massachusetts that wants more than anything to be a forest, if you leave any land in Massachusetts long enough, it will become a forest. so if you, one of the greatest threats to New England forests are the increase in grass-fed beef. Because everyone now, it's a, the consumer base in Boston and New York wants grass-fed beef. So deforest areas to grow, to um, allow for the growth of grass so that they can graze the cow. So it's tricky. Um, and no, I'm, I'm, I appreciate you adding all this this nuance and it's not cut and dry and there's not one answer. Like this is great for me to hear because I am still learning and it's, it's important for me to hear these nuance. I guess what I'm hearing is on this topic, you want to match the product for the environment and find where those those can coexist in the same space, whether that's growing, you gave the example earlier, growing corn in Iowa and having cattle in Texas or, okay, let's have grass fed, grass finished beef. Let's do it all on the great plains where there's grass yeah. to be, yeah. to be consumed. So do I have that right? That's absolutely correct. And and then one step further, even pairing then the diets of people in those regions. And so the Pampas in Argentina, they're those are that's a phenomenal area to be grazing cattle if you're doing it in a 
you know, rotational way. Um, so yes, if people in Argentina have a higher beef diet than the rest of the world, I'm okay with that because it pairs with that landscape. And also, yeah, I think there's beauty in eating. There's so many beauty, so much beauty in eating what is produced around you. And also there's a hypothesis that you, the nutrients that you need for specific climates are provided in those foods. So a lot of papaya is grown in a lot of regions with a um, papaya and pineapple, two plants that have enzymes that help defend against parasites are produced in a lot of regions or like coconut oil is really high in electrolytes in a lot of hot regions. And also the, the nutrients that you need pairs with the food for the seasons. And so a lot of, you know, like squash and sweet potato and corn have nutrients that can help you fight the flu, flu season. And so, yeah, I think that there's, there's beauty in that. And if you live in a desert eating, eating foods that don't require as much water to be produced. And that is another way to connect with the land, to have appreciation for the cultures that lived there before and what foods that they were producing, but right before we colonize it all in it. And it allows you to work on the own production of food. If you live in a desert and you try to grow your own food, you realize, oh my goodness, I can't grow blueberries, but I can grow these really cool drought resistant beans. Then that's just another opportunity to engage with nature, engage with your health, Super cool. Super cool. And last note on the topic of meat, what role do you see like new plant-based proteins playing in building a sustainable future? This is coming from a guy who opened to the world of like a beyond burger and impossible burger as a freshman in college. It just blew my mind. And I was so gung ho can I uh, hear your take on where you see those kind of plant-based protein alternatives for the future? Yeah. If, if it helps people transition away from red meat, then that's exciting. Go for it. I myself don't, I almost never eat these um, alternatives just because they're more expensive and they are still processed foods. So they're still foods that have been processed and have been packaged and have, um, they're primarily, a lot of them are still soy based and soy is not always the most sustainable. There are ways to produce soy more sustainably, but I'd rather make my own lentil burgers um, because I can buy from Costco Lentils are basically free at Costco. I got a 25 pound bag for $9 <laughs> has lasted me an entire year. I do so much with lentils. Um, yeah. So it's for me, because that's also fun. I think it's fun for me to, you know, see how many 100 different ways I can use a lentil. Um, so I myself don't use them. And I also think there's a sense of meat normalization when you introduce those products. So it's still, you still have a piece of meat quote in the center of the table at the center of your plate. It still looks like meat. It's still, so when you're sitting at a dinner party, it still is reinforcing these same ideals. Whereas if you have what I, the a dish I mentioned earlier of a thing of soba noodles and the side of, you know, pea shoot salad with tahini dressing, then they're, you're breaking that norm. That's helpful for me, for me to think about. And I think over the course of college, I've kind of naturally moved away from those options. It was amazing for me to transition like, oh, I don't need to eat a burger. I can have this plant-based burger. But I guess as 
I've found these other alternatives that I find that are just as delicious and probably more healthful. I haven't had those cravings, I guess. So, but that's interesting and important note on the fact that, yeah, it is a processed food. And I'd never thought about like the social implications of, of having that at the center of the plate, but to maybe tie a bow on this particular part of the conversation because this is a big issue you're trying to tackle or wrap your head around. What do you think are those barriers you see to helping consumers move towards sustainable choices and then, and, or like the food system more generally? The, a lot of it comes down to price. I, um, so actually how I, one of the avenues for how I became interested in regenerative agriculture was I had a meeting with Al Gore when he was visiting campus. My, um, I call it my senior spring. It was the spring before my super senior year because I took a semester off and uh, he was planning a conference for the fall and wanted feedback from some scholars at Harvard. And so it was the, the three professors that I mentioned that, that study food were like, well, what are you doing here? It's almost like you're the three professors that study food at Harvard University and Molly, the one undergrad, not the one, there are several now. Um, anyhow, so I went to this meeting and really had no idea what people were talking about the whole time. They're like carbon capture soil. And I was like, Oh, uh, yeah. I had never really heard of it. And then, um, but after the meeting, I wrote Gore a memo and I critiqued some of the things he had said. And he had said, we, we rely on consumers paying more for food. That's, that was one of the statements that he made to push forward the adoption of sustainable practices, right? Because a farmer might say, okay, I will grow food in a regenerative way, but it's going to take me twice as long. So who I'm going to want twice as much for that food. And so someone has to pay for that. And if you, one option is carbon credits, which as I mentioned, can get sketchy real fast. And so who pays for that? It's a challenging conundrum because if you rely on the consumer, this is what I argued in my memo. If you rely on the consumer, you're reinforcing the stereotype that all things that are environmental inherently cost more money. You are therefore politicizing environmentalism because you're saying, if you want to be environmental, then you have to pay five times as much for your food, which is not inclusive and not inviting um, and further alienates, further divides the coastal elite from middle America that's like, I shop on a budget. And so I don't care what sort of regenerative agriculture sticker you put on this apple. If it costs more, I will buy it. And so, but, but the challenge is, yeah, then, then who pays for that? And so I, my hope is a large shift in policy. Right now we're subsidizing a lot of very um, destructive environmental, destructive agricultural policies. And so if we could subsidize regenerative policies, that'd be a huge win. Um, and it relies, I think just if every single player did their part, right? So companies have a big role in this because they're the ones that are buying the food. They're the ones that are moving the food from the farmer to the consumer. And consumers that are able, are, are able to pay more for food. If they have the financial means to support their farmers at a farmer's market, then I would encourage that. But I don't think that the weight of shifting the food system should be placed entirely on consumers paying more. But 
the price challenge is tricky. Yeah, so I think that both at the consumer level and and the national and international scale, figuring out how to value crops in a way that includes the environmental and social costs um, within without increasing the price of food, which is some, you know, voodoo economics. <laughs> right. And maybe this is a perfect segue to talking more about you personally do you see yourself getting involved at the policy level? Because you have spent a lot of time in my, in my background research, you've spent a lot of time on the ground with the farmer. And so I, that it sounds like that would be a natural avenue for you to go down or maybe go like the public or private company route, kind of what you're doing now. But I think I read somewhere that you have aspirations for more of this policy level. Is this, am I right? And is that kind of informed by like this big barrier that you see uh, kind of hovering over all of this? In classic Harvard student fashion, I want to do it all. Um, and I want to, one of the things that excited me about studying the food system was the ability to study economics and policy and biology and ecology and physics and it just, I didn't have to choose in some ways because I was so fascinated by all these different fields and how they all relate within one system. The, I think I foresee myself, the work I'm currently doing is um, data consulting and impact evaluation for large food companies. And I'm finding this really exciting because you have the ear of the food company. If the food company has paid you to tell them how to produce a crop more sustainably, then when you tell them, okay, you're going to have to pay this much for the crop, and they say, okay, you're like, wow, that was nice, <laughs> um, versus right the activism, which is fighting and fighting and fighting, and sometimes you don't always see um, the the results of, of your advocacy. Um, there is, of course, criticism for that of saying, you know, how much, yeah, what do you shoot for? Do you shoot to reinvent capitalism and to totally, you know, tear down every multinational corporation and sue them for all the environmental damage they've ever done? Or, you know, maybe you can advocate for that while also trying to make systematic, slow, steady change within the system. And there's a tension there of how radical to be. And so I say, my, I'm interested in shifting large corporate supply chains to more regenerative, more equal, um, equitable systems. So I think I see myself in the private role, but the leaders in the private sector have tremendous policy influence. They are testifying before Congress. They are advocating for policies that will help them make those sustainable shifts. So that makes a lot of sense. And I think we can tie this into you mentioned your academic path at school very intentionally studying food in the environment which is kind of a non-traditional decision not a major that harvard offers and then you also so yeah let's let's start there can you take me back to the vision and like what you saw yourself using that that background in yeah i in high school i said i'm gonna i'm gonna go to harvard people said wow what do you want to do there and i said i want to design my own major in food and the environment and people were like 
what are you going to do with that? Because <laughs> there's also been a shift in the interest in food. So rewind six, I graduated high school in 2014 before taking a gap year. And six years ago, it was just not something that were on people's radar. There was not New York Times front cover articles about soil and agriculture as there are today. Um, which is exciting. I was like, I, I, I thought ag was cool before it was cool. Um, and so now I have to be okay with the fact that everyone thinks ag is cool. It's no longer my, my cool little um, side hobby. The, so I knew coming into college that I wanted to, to study it and initially started studying it under the Environmental Science and Public Policy Department, which was a great fit. I'm glad I started there. It was, they make the special concentration application intentionally really hard because they don't want students pursuing it unless you really, really know what you're trying to do with it. Um, also because you don't then have the support of a concentration. So you have to be ready to continue blazing your way through college. And then I took a semester off. I, that was my first field research experience. I was working with cocoa exporters in Guatemala and then Belize. Um, and I, at that point, I came back after that semester off and said, I definitely want to study this. I had known before, but I was still, maybe I'll be an ecologist. And also really took to heart the to the 2016 election um, as just the American public electing someone who was a climate denier. And that led to a lot of crisis of, oh, why am I studying this thing that is so depressing that really we're all just going to die? And why am I, why am I fretting about all this, all this climate and resource use? Anyhow, so after that semester off, knew that it was what I wanted to study. And at that point, halfway through college, really didn't have that many courses left. And so I was looking at the course requirements for environmental science and public policy. And I had taken all the upper level courses and none of the intro courses. So I had I took a junior tutorial my freshman year and then I took a second junior tutorial my sophomore year. And then by junior year, I was like, I wanna just keep taking junior tutorials and I do not wanna take intro to chemistry with all pre-meds. And I don't wanna take intro to calc and I don't wanna take intro to stat. And I, um, those were just courses that I felt if I needed that material, I could teach myself. Whereas, and I also in college got a um, visual, um, well, a studio art secondary, they've changed the name of the concentration and a Spanish language citation. So I was trying to take a lot of different classes and I wanted, I said, okay, if I have five spots left for courses, I want those to be five courses that change my worldview. And so um, that was a big moment where I said, okay. And so that, getting the special concentration allowed me to take that Michael Pollan class, which, you know, allowed me to take an English class to complement the other classes I had taken. So I ended up taking courses. It was like 16 different academic departments, maybe more um, of, so almost every course was in a different academic department. And that gave me the, I had a very niche topic of food and the environment, but I took approach from so many different angles, which is, exciting because I feel like I can move laterally within that field. If I, right now I'm doing some data work, but if I want to shift more towards policy, I have that background and I have a background in food science, which informs, you know, work that I do in any, wherever I land in that field. That is so cool that 
you were very intentional about it. And I think the only folks that come into college, like knowing what they want to do, they might say, oh, I'm going to go down the pre-med route or, oh, I'm going to go down the gov route and be a lawyer or whatever. And it's really cool to hear that you came in with an equally crystallized vision of what you wanted, but just going down a totally non-traditional path. So I'd say anybody listening who might be younger is like, take that to heart. And there are ways to make it happen. You don't need to silo yourself into the traditional, traditional lanes. And another untraditional decision you made that kind of is a part of Harvard that I might not be exposed to is you lived outside of the traditional housing system in the Dudley house. Is that the correct phrasing? It's called the co-op. The yeah. co-op. So the Dudley house co-op. And maybe if you could explain for those who have no idea what we're talking about and maybe help me understand like what your thought process was to decide to live in that space as opposed to the traditional housing system? The So I moved, freshman year, all students live in Harvard Yard. That is required by university. Awesome experience. That's actually where I first started homebrewing in, in my weld freshman year dorm in the, in the common room bathroom. Um, and it's a way of way of meeting totally random people throughout Harvard. And they they structure that housing in a very intentional way. Sophomore year, I lived in Leopard House and I really committed to the house experience. I felt that that was a, an important part of the Harvard experience. Harvard really values their the community that they have within houses. So I was excited about that, went all in. Um, and then I was one of the few people in the co-op who didn't didn't move away from Harvard housing, but was rather just drawn to the co-op. There's a lot of animosity in the co-op towards Harvard University as an entity. And so they see living in the co-op as a revolt against that, right? Whatever they are, we do not want to be. We are our own entity. We are not affiliated with the university. I loved so many aspects of the university. I loved living in Leverett. I just wanted what the co-op could offer more. Um, and so what the co-op could offer is a group of 32 students living in two adjacent Victorian homes north of campus. And we um, would buy all of our food in bulk and cook community dinners every single night. And so um, my love for like bulk beans and like bulk cashews, you know, like, oh my goodness, just like anytime you want like an almond, there's an almond available, which is just a beautiful thing. And yeah, so I got really good at cooking for huge volumes of people and all the food is vegetarian and about 90% or something is vegan. And so um, it was a way of eating food that fit with my values and a really exciting community within the co-op that was really supportive. You would come home and there would always be people sitting there hanging out. You could grab something from the snack cabinet and there's homemade granola and we made our own nut milks and yeah, just a really a lot of support within the community. And it taught me the thing I learned the most about is 
group leadership. So there is a very intentionally not a hierarchical leadership structure within the co-op. And so how to make decisions as a group of 32 college students and how to facilitate meetings and how to have a sense of accountability. So we did all our own cleaning, but many of the cleaning chores would not get done. And then the house would get gross. And then how do you navigate that? But then the person didn't clean because they were having a really bad day. And so how do you say to them, ah, you not cleaning made my day bad, but also I'm so sorry that you're going through what you're going through. How can I support you? And so finding ways to support a community, just fascinating. And it made me, I had to confront politics and kind of the underpinnings of democracy in a really front on way of, of thinking on a daily basis about compromise, about communication, about leadership styles and live more intentionally than you do in a Harvard house where the structure of the house and the cleaning and the cooking happens in a really invisible way. And is also so much cheaper because you're doing all your own cooking and cleaning, save about $8,000 a year, which multiply that by several years. That goes a very far away. So it was a win for so many different reasons. And I liked biking and I liked painting my walls and thought it was fun to live in, live next to an anarchist, you know, when in college. Yeah. You don't get that in the, you may be able to find that, but you're almost guaranteed that in Dudley. So that's, that's cool to hear about maybe your that non-traditional decision, but coming from a different angle. And you mentioned the the cooking piece. This is a question that just came to mind, especially as I'm thinking about, oh, I'm going to be home and cooking for myself in a few short months. What is either a recipe from that time or more recently that you'd recommend I try uh, as first or second night home i have the world is my oyster no pun intended what would you recommend i try oh my goodness i mean it depends on how much time you are trying to spend i i spent a lot of covid i early covid i had two different fads that's a personal fad if that's a, a phrase you can say the first was working with does so um they're working with does are a a part of cooking that require a lot of time that it's really easy to jump over. So making your own bread, I make my own tortillas, I make my own pierogies, your own pastas. If you want to make ravioli or I make my own mochi and then I surround, get little ice cream balls and you surround little, every little ice cream ball with every little mochi, right? So if you're making dumplings, if you're, I made empanadas, I made Samosas, right? These are all things that are wrapped or just require making some sort of dough and all each dough is different. Um, and so it's a way of exploring the just exploring different global cultures through the way in which they make their staple crop um, or they process their staple crop. So a staple crop in Latin America, corn, they make tortillas. Um, and so, yeah, if you want to spend a lot of time diving into something, I would say go with any of those that I just mentioned. If you're looking for, I, this is my go-to fast, 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 I'm going to make dinner for a group, is I get like two cans of chickpeas, one can of coconut milk, and then one jar or little tin or paste, whatever format you can find it in, of curry powder. Not curry. Well, curry powder also works. Um, 
curry paste. And then if you want to really go go crazy, then you could saute some onions in the pan first, and then you add all of those together and you have a curry. And then on the side, if you have a rice cooker, it's the easiest way to cook rice. If not, you can cook in a pan, some brown rice, and then you have yourself, you know, starch, protein, creaminess. It's a nice warm bowl, especially during the winter. And then, yeah, if you want to have a side salad on the on the side of that, you buy some of those pre-washed green leafy greens and then in super easy tahini. I love all things tahini, but just tahini, lemon juice, olive oil, salt, garlic, and you sell, you have yourself a dressing, but you can also buy pre-made salad dressing. You know, it's like starting from where you're at. There are, I do not buy pre-made salad dressing because I enjoy the act of making my own salad dressings. But if buying pre-made salad dressing helps you eat more salad, then buy it, right? So like making things easier, reducing the barriers for you eating delicious, nutritious food. Love that. And I will definitely try that. Something you do not get at Harvard University Dining Services, although they are doing a much better job on the vegan and vegetarian offerings. So uh, to start thinking about bringing this conversation to a close, I'd love to talk more about you, we talked a lot about the issues that you that you have studied and understand, and you've taught me a lot. But I'd say first on the topics we've discussed, are there any documentaries, YouTube videos, podcasts, or any resources that you think are accessible for people to learn more about this intersection of food in the environment? Yeah, my favorite podcast, and I, I'm proud to recommend it because every person I've recommended it to then is saying, oh, this is now my new favorite podcast. So it's a, it's a recommendation with good reviews. Um, it's called Gastropod. And they, the two hosts actually met in a Michael Pollan journalism class. So that's how I first heard about it. And they look at food through the lens of science and cooking. So it's through the lens of science and history. And each each podcast, they have so many because they've been around for a good number of years and they release one every two weeks, is on a different on a different food or a different topic. And some are more social justice oriented or they'll take a gender lens or a race lens or then they'll take, they had an episode all about growing crops in the desert. And so it's all about water use or when they have actually a podcast all about um, capturing carbon in soil. And so they visit a lot of the foremost researcher places and yeah, they have ones about culture. And so it's just a fun way to learn about food in, in all of its interdisciplinary aspects. And we had mentioned, you had mentioned this before about some of the challenges of documentaries is that they're intended to be agitational and to activate a sense of urgency. Um, so rarely are they balanced in, in their, how they address their issues. So I think that there's a lot of great documentaries out there that highlight challenges we have in the global food system, but sometimes they fall into the trope of them saying, oh, small mom and pop farms are the solution and the only way forward are farmers markets. And you're like, well, that's a part of the way forward. And so I think watching those documentaries to educate yourself further, um, Food Inc. is, you know, the, the OG that came out a handful of decade and a half ago at this point or something. Um, yeah, learn, use those as resources while not relying entirely 
on documentaries because they're they're an easy way to find information but aren't always um the most balanced in their perspectives awesome awesome recommendation and it's crazy that i haven't heard of that so so thank you and it can be in the food environment space or just personal interest are there any other books that you think have you've either gifted a lot to friends family or otherwise has positively impacted your life that comes to mind yeah the first is um the overstory everyone should read the over have you heard of the Overstory? i've read it yeah yes <laughs> um so yes you uh, you know why i i hopefully you know why i recommend it um it yeah it's a it's a novel but about about the environment but it's i think is yeah the i don't know if you had used the word accessible in your question but it's a, it's accessible to a wide audience. You can read it for the beauty of its literature. You can read it as a way of understanding um, the history of environmental radicalism. It's and it's very all American. Is another thing I appreciated is its breadth and scope of how it addresses Americanisms. Definitely accessible, and I mean, you could read it just for the story. And so yes. I think I might have approached that book incorrectly because I wanted it to be more than it was. I thought like, oh, this is going to change how I look at trees. It's a story based on on trees. I thought it changed how I look. I mean, I already love trees. I just had so much. I was like, oh, the forest. It's all so connected. Well, I'm glad. That's awesome. Awesome recommendation. And would would recommend if it sounds interesting to people, pick it up. Um, and this one is sometimes a swing and a miss, but I'll ask it anyway. Can you share what is on your bedside table or desk at home? Yes, I I live a um a nomadic lifestyle, which I um uh, the other day I was talking with a friend and I was like, I think I'm a digital nomad, but I hate that word. So I'm not going to identify as it, but I am primarily based out of my 16 year old Subaru Outback. And I have been theoretically based in Park City, Utah with my parents. So when I'm there, I live on my dad's sofa bed in his office. And so the bedside table is full of his work papers. And if I'm not there, then I'm camping or I'm in a forest service cabin or I am, forest service cabins are little cabins in the national forest or I am at like random motels on the road. And so I, um, the fun answer to this is that I have absolutely no consistency ever in what is next to my bed, which is also very telling about myself because I find myself in different places every week. Where are you this week? My God, I'm in Texas. How are you? Well, I'm glad I asked. That is so, that is definitely the most unique answer I've gotten on that one. So, (laughs) so thank you. And from all of your traveling and your unique college experience and just experience more generally i'd love to know like given what you know now what would you tell a younger version of yourself oof um it's hard to answer this without being very cliche i think my younger version of myself i used to be a very um 
high caliber ski racer and that consumed most of my life. And I look back on that, on that stage in which that I had spent less time racing and more time doing environmental advocacy or doing something that wasn't so self-focused as a individual sport. When you're training for an individual sport, the focus is all on you. And so I wish that I had had more of a global outlook and was spent less of my mental energy thinking about how can I win the next ski race and more of like, how can I give back to my local community? But that comes with perspective. I never could have, there's a reason that teenagers are the way that they are. And, um, and you, you know, your parents, your parents tell you, I knew what it was like to be your age and you'll get wiser as you get older, but you never want to listen to your parents. And then once you're older and you're of the age of that you theoretically could be a parent you're like oh wow I actually do know more now than I knew back then you do get wiser with age and yeah so wish that I had yeah I wish I had been kinder and more generous and more hardworking. and I wish I had spent more time with family and all these tropes that I continue to tell myself and continue to work towards and you'll never achieve them but the goal is to just always be striving for them and to not just strive for them in a theoretical way but to you know regularly have honest conversations with yourself about how are the steps that I'm taking in my life bringing me closer or further away from you know the goals that I want to be and whatever those are and I, and then also being explicit about the trade-offs that you need to make in achieving those and that's something I've been reflecting on a lot is I want to be a good family member. I want to be a good friend. I want to adventure and I want to climb every peak in the Alps. And I also want to run the USDA and you're okay. Well, not all of those can happen simultaneously. And so being more okay with letting some goals go because I want to prioritize others, which is a harder pill for someone who's younger to swallow. And then when you get older, and you make the mistake of overscheduling yourself 50 too many times and it starts to pick up with you. And I have to ask how it sounds, you're obviously very thoughtful about this topic. How do you find yourself reflecting on these, these big questions, whether that's goals you have professionally or aspirations of how you want to conduct yourself more personally? Do you have a practice of reflection, whether that's with a journal on the phone or what does that look like in your own life? <laughs> I've tried journaling. I journal here and there. I dabble with journaling. One of my favorite uh, activities is writing letters to myself. So I'll write them, um, you know, letter to myself for a year from now or a letter to myself for six months or most recently I wrote a letter to myself for when I'm 30. Um, so that was fun. It was just sitting down and thinking, what would I want to tell the 30-year-old me? Or who do I, where do I want to be when I'm 30? And, and the fun part of that is then you get to read it on the other side. And maybe one of the things that sparked it is when I was 21, my dad gave me a letter that six-year-old Molly had written to her 21-year-old self. And it was like, you know, my name is Molly. My name, I like spelled my own name wrong. Um, and then it was like, I love my teddy bear. And I, when I'm older, I want to be a scientist and a gymnastics teacher and a cook. 
And I was like, wow, I am a fitness instructor, a scientist and a cook. And that was exciting for me to see the realization of my six-year-old. That is so wild. So a few questions. So you're reflecting on in those letters, like where you are now and where you want to be. And then uh, like maybe whatever you're worrying about at the, at the present. And then you do open it. Is it handwritten and you open it on whatever birthday that you set yourself for? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, and this mostly in college, it would, it would be, Oh, write a letter from end of the semester. Um, And it's just interesting to reflect on perspective itself. And so think, yeah, what, what matters now that won't matter later or what will matter later that doesn't matter now. Um, Super cool. And also just thinking about, I think with journaling, the challenge I have is, is releasing myself of the question of audience because when I'm journaling, I'm like, who is this for? Is this for myself right now? Is this a way of processing? Is this, am I writing this for my future self to read back on? Am I writing this for the bibliographer who finds my journal 10 years after my death? There's a weird sense of, although it's for yourself, what if someone found this? What if this got burned? There's, I, I think I get in my own head too much that, I'm, not, I'm sometimes unsure what to write because I'm unsure who the intended audience is. Well, I, I would say if you do want to journal, set all those expectations to the wayside and just write what comes to mind. Um, but I, I, I think it might've been in a podcast. They mentioned the idea of writing like a email to your future self and then having the like send later feature on Gmail. So I think that plus this is gonna gonna force me to actually get myself to do it. So uh, thank you, that sounds fun. The key is to have it where you can't open it earlier. So in for the email, it's just to make sure that it doesn't just sit in your outbox for an extended period of time or the letter I will seal it and then sign it, sign the sealed so that, yeah, there's a sense of physical detachment. I think there, there might be, there might be something special about that process, especially in our lives that live, live on our computers. And final, final question as to, to wrap this up, hopefully I personally and I know my roommate is, we love quotes and mantras. We have sticky notes all over, all over our dorm. You can probably see on the whiteboard, we have a handful of quotes. Is there a quote or mantra that you'd say you try to live by, or you just find yourself thinking of often? Do one thing a day that scares you. Um, I've had that one for a long time. It's the only one that I think I always come back to. And I, the times I will say it out loud are just the most ridiculous situations. I'll be like this summer. I'm standing on top of this, this cornice. I was skiing on July 3rd, no, June 30th up in Montana. Um, like had hiked up with my skis and I was with a group of friends and they were like, Oh, like, 
bet like look how huge that cliff is and i was like oh like i'll hit it and then they're like no you won't and i was like now i have to go hit the cliff and you're standing on top and i was like do one thing i that scares you and just sent it um so there'll be situations like that or if i like see someone cute and then i'll be like okay do one thing i do that scares you and i'll like walk by them and that will be my like big moment of the day but yeah i think it's it, it, anytime you come to that block, if you come to a block of just being afraid and then being like, oh, wait, how have I challenged myself today? And it's not that I finish every day and say, oh, what did I do today that scared me? I think I, in, in various periods of my journaling, I would, you know, sit down and write an answer to that every night. And that I think could be, could be cool. And then parallel to that is like learn one new thing a day. And that can be however big, however small, or um, a friend of mine, he for a while was really interested in learning new skill every month. And so whether that was this month, I'm going to try out the guitar and I'm going to try out this sort of dancing and just this eagerness to find new experiences that, that drives a lot of what I do. I like that. Get out of your own way. And then also expand that resonates resonates with me um man i'm looking at the time that absolutely flew by and it was an absolute pleasure to be able to finally connect for the first real time we only chat over the phone and text previously so uh as real as it can be in these times over zoom i'm so glad we were able to do it i know i learned a lot hopefully the people out there take uh at least one thing from this conversation and yeah thank you for taking me to school today i appreciate it i definitely learned one two a dozen new things today so so thank you thank you so much thank you for having me oh it was a pleasure hey everybody thank you all for tuning in hope you enjoyed that one As always, you can find links to everything we discussed, show notes, and a lot more goodies like my favorite reads on my website at chrismcgrory.net. That's C-H-R-I-S-M-C-G-R-O-R-Y dot net. Thanks so much and see you next time.